Dr. David Albert is a physician, inventor, and serial entrepreneur. He studied at both Harvard and Duke University Medical School. In 2001, he sold Data Critical to GE in a deal that valued it at $45 million. And I thought, this is the greatest dang idea I've ever had. And so what did I do? Made another really bad decision. So I went to my wife and I went to my dad and I said, you know what? I'm going to drop out of clinical medicine. I'm going to start a company. Perhaps his magnum opus, AliveCore, has raised over $150 million and creates devices which are able to take ECGs, or heart traces, from anywhere at any time. Its newest innovation, the CardioMobile Card, is a credit card which can take an ECG, all whilst fitting into your wallet. By the way, I know I'm old. My mentors are all dead. That's how I know I'm old. He also has over 75 patents and 100 scientific publications. We speak about his formula and framework for innovating, lessons he's learned from his buddies such as Eric Topol and Vinod Kosler, and whether everything in medicine should be democratised. I hope you enjoy. In preparation for this interview, I googled your name and I found at least 32 US patents with your name on them and you mentioned... 75. Alive. I have 75. 75. Yeah, today <laughs> I have 75 patents and, and those are, those are uh, second only to my children and my grandchildren. Those are things I'm very proud of. So my question was... Are there any frameworks or ways you think or you think there's something about you that means that you're able to, I guess, spot these gaps or spot these opportunities and, and really make something uh, to correct them? Do you think there are any ways you like to approach problems that, that mean that you've come up with all of these things? Well, I, I've given some lectures. I gave a lecture at, at MIT Sloan School of Business way 15 years ago. And in that lecture, I, 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 I coined a term intercepting the strategic vector. And basically what I said is, look for, there was a book written in the 1980s by not John Nesbitt called Megatrends, all right? I look for trends, and then I look for conventional wisdom. And I do what I call orthogonal thinking. I try to take a perspective that is orthogonal 90 degrees from that conventional wisdom. The fish are all swimming in this direction. I want to swim in this direction because if I do that, I will come up with a unique solution, a unique answer to whatever that problem is. So yes, you know, as a physician, you'll get to see problems you see in your workflows, in your therapies, in your diagnostic modalities. You as a physician will see those. You saw them in your training. You saw them in medical school. And and now you get to the opportunity to say, is there some way to do this better? That's the way innovation occurs, is people who understand the problems decide they're going to take an unconventional approach to that problem. And, and I, now I've systematized that. I always do it. At first, I stumbled into it by making those series of bad decisions I told you. You know, you got to the point where... Uh, I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I didn't want to disappoint my wife, my children. Uh, embarrassment, fear are great motivators when it comes to working 26-hour days. And uh, unfortunately, they're not good for your family life. However, uh, you know, I, I have an incredibly tolerant wife. She is a physician, an academic physician, by the way. Uh, and and uh, I even have a son who's a physician. But I would tell you that, that I've systematized the notion that whatever the problem I recognize, 
one, I try to figure out what's a unique way of approaching that problem? What's a unique solution? The second thing I try to do is, is it practical yet? Does the technology exist? Do, does the infrastructure exist to implement whatever crazy idea I have? And there are a couple of Silicon Valley mantras that are, that are good. And one of them is, uh, to be early is to be wrong. If I try to implement my idea of a personal ECG device and communicating directly to physician in 1995, I would have failed. If that was my idea for my company, I would have failed because you couldn't implement it practically in 1995. It took 15 years later. The invention of the iPhone, the invention of 3G communications and, you know, practical digital wireless communications around the world before my idea could be implemented. So I had to be able to recognize that. And so I, you know, I've got my laptop here I'm talking to you on in about five books. So I raised it up a little bit. And, um, you know, it's a number of books like Michael Lewis's the premonition about the pandemic and the people who saw it coming, okay? Uh, I look for people who, who give me ideas, who tell me what are, the, what are the new megatrends? What are the new problems? And then I take my, my view of medicine, where I literally uh, plug myself into around the world to, to clinical medicine, and I, I, I ask my friends, what, so what's, what's the long pole here? What's the hard putt here? And, and from those, I go back and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough at AliveCore, we have some really outstanding investors. One of them is a company called Qualcomm, which makes the chips that go on almost every cell phone that doesn't have a fruit on it. Uh, and, and another one is a company called Omron which if you go into any pharmacy, you'll find their blood pressure machines literally all over the world. And they're investors in my company and partners of us. And so, you know, they give me insights into technologies that are coming and technologies that exist that I didn't have myself and, and enable me to, to potentially come up with new ideas. And so, you know, I, 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 while I've systematized it for myself, uh, that's still, you know, I, I, I'm not, I think everybody has to take their own unique perspective on how you innovate. But I do believe that innovation is something you can learn. I learned it spontaneously. I was not an innovator when I was 20 years old, okay? Um, and I learned it out of necessity. And I would not, you know, I have a lot of young people, physicians like you, medical students, graduate students, people come to me, attending physicians, people in their 50s. I want to do what you did. And I go, no, 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 you don't want to do what I did. I didn't, this, it's worked out for me, but it could have, I could have failed many, I, I have failed many times, I just failed small, okay? And, but, but I could have failed big. And in which case, it's back to plan B. And so I would tell people, do it smarter than I did it. You know, if you're going to start a company, you better either have your best friend who knows what they're doing, you know, who's got an MBA, who knows how to start and run a business, who knows the aspects of finance and marketing and human resources, et cetera, manufacturing, all these things that I had no clue about. You don't want to jump off that board 
and think you're jumping, you know, you're jumping off into a swimming pool and not jumping off into the Grand Canyon. Okay, that's the, you don't want to do it with your eyes closed because you, you want to know where you're jumping. So uh, I think you can learn it. And I think, uh, I think almost anyone can, can be an innovator in almost anything they do. It doesn't mean they're going to be an entrepreneur, but you can innovate in almost everything. And again, that comes down to take that unique perspective, come up with a different answer. And if you believe it's the right answer, stick to it. You mentioned megatrends, and I think there's another kind of innovation mantra, which is something like that most people underestimate, or sorry, most people will overestimate what will come in the next two or three years. You know, there's talk of self-driving cars always being five years around the corner, but most people will probably underestimate what might change in two decades, say. And I just was really curious to hear from you what kind of megatrends or changes you might see in healthcare say in the next decade or two, and particularly anything that you think that might not be that obvious or something that you might might have your finger on? Well, I, I, first of all, uh, I, I'm very blessed. Uh, I have a, a leading investor, uh, chairman of my board. is a very famous venture capitalist named Vinod Kosla, who was a co-founder of Sun Microsystems. And Vinod, uh, you know, famously uh, 10 years ago said 80% of what doctors do will be replaced by AI. And of course, I immediately went to him and said, hey, Vinod, am I in the 20%? Um, but, you know, he, he continuously is looking to the future, looking to innovations. AI is clearly going to play a major role. But as he says, I may get the timing wrong, but I'll get the direction right. And we will overestimate the short-term achievements and underestimate the long-term ones. Absolutely true. So while we may think that self-driving cars are here tomorrow, they're not, but they will be here. And so as I, 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 I've said this, I famously tell my children, and I, I want them all four children to do their own thing, but I told them there are only two jobs in this world that I wouldn't want them to pursue, truck driving and diagnostic radiology, because both of those jobs are going to be taken out by AI sometime in the future, okay? Trucks go, you know, delivery trucks go from point A to point B. They don't, you know, they don't stop and have lunch. They don't, you know, meander. They just go from point A to point B. And point A to point B on roads is something that will ultimately be done by cars that don't, trucks don't have people in them. And diagnostic radiology, again, there's the mantra of physicians who, you know, physicians won't be replaced by AI but physicians who use AI will, will replace those who don't. And, you know, what you want is you want to have what I call the highly specific screen. I want AI that really knows normal. And anything it doesn't call normal, that's what I want to look at. But I want to have absolute confidence that when it calls normal, it's basically 100% specific. It may not be sensitive at all, but it's 100% specific. And that will make me much more efficient as a diagnostic radiologist or any physician. And that's true in almost anything. I, I, we have to become more efficient. We, it, it, it's very hard to train someone like you. It's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. Yet we, around the world, need more physicians, more nurses. And so we have to improve your efficiency. And, uh, you know, I was shocked to hear a few years ago 
a statistic that just blew my mind. 50% of the population of the world will be born and die without ever seeing a doctor. I was like, no, no. No, that's a U.S., U.K. perspective. That's not a perspective from the middle of China, South America, Africa, uh, New Guinea. <laughs> it's, it's not, those people live where, you know, it, they don't have a minute clinic uh, a block away. And so, you know, there, uh, clearly, there are way over a billion people who don't have access to doctors. And so somehow we have to help with that. Because there's no, you know, today we still, we still have people dying from the complications of rheumatic fever, something that we've been able to cure with penicillin for 70 years. And people are still dying of rheumatic fever complications. Holy smokes, okay? We have rapid strep tests. We have antibiotics that can cure you know, strep throat, yet people are dying of rheumatic fever. We got to do something about that. You know, it's just like malaria. <laughs> people are still dying of malaria. People are still dying of TB. And these are things we can cure. A lot of people died. Millions of people died of COVID in the last two years. And, and you know, and we have extremely effective vaccines. So, you know, we need to spread the knowledge and spread the wealth and that, my friend, is a very fertile ground for innovation. A lot of your colleagues, your friends, your investors, people like, say, Eric Topol, Vinod Kosla, I, I wanted to ask about these people. And I wanted to ask if you, through spending time with them and talking to them, have you noticed any common trends in habits they have, ways they think, ways they approach problems? Are there any things you've kind of got from them through osmosis that you can think of? First of all, they're techno-optimists. You have in that they believe that the future will be better and that technology will enable better futures, that it won't be a Terminator type future. Okay, AI aren't going to come after us. Um, and, and, and they're slow to say no. That is, no to an idea. They want to research it. And they also, uh, I think, you know, Eric is a scientist. Vinod is an engineer. You know, you could call that applied science. But uh, both of them, you know, have their finger on the pulse of, of progress. Whether it was Sun Workstations, you know, at Sun Microsystems, or any of the, the investments uh, that, that Vinod has made, or whether it's Eric Topol and, you know, figuring out that, uh, by the way, Vioxx had bad outcomes for people with cardiovascular disease. And he became famous for pointing that out uh, to Merck's uh, chagrin uh, and the FDA's chagrin. Uh, the reality is they're always questioning. They're always challenging. And, and to those around them, they may find that somewhat intimidating. But, but you should see that as a tremendous asset. You know, you need to be challenging yourself as well as having people like them challenge you and challenge your ideas because, uh, you know, a simple adage from one of my coaches many years ago was the strongest steel, I think Manchester's a steel town, 
I think it used to be a steel town. The strongest steel is forged in the hottest fire. And so you have to challenge your ideas. They have to survive those challenges if they really are valuable. So that's, that's what you can get. These people challenge the status quo and believe that tomorrow will be better and that technology can be part of that. I wanted to ask a little bit about the direct-to-consumer approach in healthcare and maybe the whole, you know, another Silicon Valley mantra is democratizing X, democratizing Y and bringing it to the people. And I guess that's something you might have done at LiveCore as well, bringing ECGs anywhere, anytime, anyone can do it. I think one really interesting study that I'm sure you've read as well is the Stanford Apple Watch study. And I think one of the most interesting parts of that study for me was that the Apple Watch had great sensitivity and specificity for detecting AF. But then when you look at the kind of the subgroups and you look at the people who are using the Apple Watches the most, which are younger people under 55s, the prevalence of AF is so low that even if you have this amazing device put into their hands, the positive predictive value, or in other words, um, you know, if my Apple Watch tells me that I have AF, how likely is it that it's you correct? You probably don't. That's correct. You, you, yeah, you, you probably know, don't. Sensitivity, people love to talk about sensitivity and specificity. They don't want to talk about prevalence and positive and negative predictive accuracy. Definitely. And, you, you know, that, that clearly is the case that, that if you put those tools in the hands of people who are 30 years old, and oh, by the way, health conscious, fitness kinds of people, that most probably any alert you give them is a false positive alert. It doesn't matter how good you are. It just is the facts. And the, the, the numbers, you know, it, it, an interesting thing, prevalence for a condition like atrial fibrillation rises exponentially above the age of about 65. It just starts going up exponentially to where people over the age of 80 have 10, 15% prevalence of atrial fibrillation. Uh, the, the problem is they also die. And so you, the numbers you have, you know, you have n n big numbers. And as you get older, you have smaller and smaller numbers. And so while prevalence goes up, actual numbers go down. And so these are all things you have to consider when you look at value. Uh, I can give you, you know, this is near and dear to my heart. And why? Because uh, at AliveCore, the average age of our customers and most of our customers buy their product directly, whether it's from Amazon or our website or the average age of our customers, 63 years old. Oh my gosh, that's not an average app user. Those people aren't on TikTok all day, okay, addicting, you know, or Tinder or whatever the heck app you're using. Uh, they're patients. So we know that more than 50% of our devices are bought on the recommendation of principally a cardiologist. That's true in England too. You know, whether it's, uh, if, you know, there are some very famous cardiologists in England that tell their patients to buy a cardia. And, and, uh, and true in the United States and in other places. So what I would tell you is they're selecting. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have some potential issues. I had a very uh, well-known cardiologist 10 years ago uh, call me into his office. And he looked at me scowling. And I knew I had a problem. He said, Dave, I gave one of your devices to one of my patients. Oh, great. And he sent me 20 ECGs the first day. 
I said, you and I both have a problem. You need to better select and educate your patients, and I need to handle the data better so that it is not such a burden to you. And we spent a lot of time and effort at AliveCore working on those problems, both helping physicians educate their patients, selecting the right ones. We don't want to create e-hypochondriacs, okay? Uh, cyber hypochondriacs, whatever you call them. And, and we don't want to burden the worried well. We want to help patients. And we do want to empower them because, you know, we, we in medicine, one of the, what, what's one of the biggest problems? I, I look at it, it doesn't matter what your therapies are, but almost the biggest problem we have with almost any chronic condition is compliance with our therapies. It doesn't matter if it's anticoagulation. We put somebody, even on a new direct anticoagulant, forget about warfarin, we put them on Eliquis. They stop taking it, okay? They're scared. They want to go skiing or they want to, you know, ride a bike and things they're told they can't do when they're taking these medicines and, and blood pressure medicines for a variety of reasons. Some having to do with personal performance, other ones. People stop taking it. Compliance is a huge issue. And so an empowered patient is a more compliant patient. You know, Eric Topol's book, The Patient Will See You Now, essentially turning the old paradigm of uh, Mr. Smith, the doctor will see you now, turning it around 180, that's to make the patient a partner with you so that your book of patients that you see consider you a partner, a friend, and take the things you say to heart. They will be more compliant, and therefore they will have better outcomes. So, you know, I think all of this goes together. Um, that partnership and AI and monitoring, uh, democratizing access to technology. I mean, here's the greatest example was long before me. Uh, when I was in medical school in the late 1970s, do you know how diabetics got their blood sugar measured? They went into a doctor's office. Do you think any diabetic would think that that's practical today and that they could be well-controlled by having to go into a doctor's office to, to uh, get their blood sugar measured? No, we have continuous glucometers. And those are, in, and you, you know, for several decades, you've been able to prick your finger and get a, a blood sugar measurement, an A1C measurement. Those things have empowered and improved the outcomes of diabetics all over the world. Uh, that was an example high blood pressure. Blood pressure machines are available. You don't have to go to a doctor's office to measure your blood pressure. You don't have to go into a pharmacy, stick your arm in a machine to measure your blood pressure. You can do it at home with a very economical machine. We just applied that same idea to your cardiac rhythm. Because there are millions of people that have abnormal cardiac rhythms, some of which can be very dangerous. And so, you know, I followed those previous paradigms and just applied it to something I knew well. And speaking more broadly, perhaps outside of a live core or even cardiology, are there things, are there measurements, are there tests that you think shouldn't be democratized or do you think everything will eventually be democratized? So I can imagine like an MRI head, for example, that's not a useful thing for someone to be able to do on their own. Well, um, it, first of all, not economical, 
nor practical, uh, your home MRI machine. I, I'm sure that's in a science fiction book somewhere. Uh, uh, yes, it was. It was in the the movie was Elysium, uh, uh, and and uh, if if you saw that movie, uh, the the people who lived in the uh, orbiting super city uh, could get in their machines and it would scan their body and find their cancers and take care of them and cleared their arteries and kept them in ultimate physical shape. Uh, in science fiction. Uh, so what do I think? I think there are things that today we still need doctors involved with, we still need nurses involved with, because our therapies are not without potential harm. You can, uh, and, and we know this, for instance, pain medicine. I, we don't have, you know, uh, we have some very powerful pain medicines, uh, and, and they can be abused, and they can cause great harm and death. And so, you know, those are things where, you know, sometimes you send somebody home with a, you know, a PCA pump, uh, but it's regulated. You know, it's not like they can juice themselves up into a, you know, respiratory arrest. Uh, I, I think there are things, and, and at least for the foreseeable future, uh, we will have doctors involved, you know, chest x-rays. You're not going to be taking your chest x-ray at home. Uh, you know, I, I've got, this is a, a GE Echo device, GEV scan air. So I can do an echocardiogram anywhere. You know, as long as I got some gel, I got this, it's charged. I can do an EKG anywhere. I can listen to the heart anywhere. I can digitize it. And I can send those to people even smarter than me who can tell me, what did I miss? So those kinds of things are going to be available. Uh, we will have AI that teaches relatively newbies how to do an echo. Uh, for whatever organ system you want to do it on. And those costs will come down. But there's not much harm you can do with an echocardiogram unless you, like, swallowed it, and it looks a little big to me. Um, but x-rays, MRIs, CTs, uh, various therapies, you know, you're not going to be doing your own cath at home. You're not going to be placing your own stent. You're not going to be doing your own ablation. Uh, there's still going to be a lot. You're not going to be uh, probably... You're not going to be giving yourself your own chemo unless it's some oral medication. Uh, so there are a lot of things that will still remain in the domain, both therapeutic and diagnostic, uh, needing professional guidance, supervision, and interpretation. So, uh, but more things will, you know, blood tests, COVID tests. I mean, revolutionary. In the last two years, we now have home rapid antigen tests. And that technology, kind of like Velcro coming out of the Apollo program, will be applied to a lot of other diseases. You know, we'll have home flu tests and we'll have home RSV tests. We'll have lots of different kinds of tests, just like you have home, you know, uh, drug tests now. So parents can remain paranoid about their kids and what they're doing. Uh, there'll be more things democratized. There'll be more things that'll come down in cost. And I think ultimately those will be very beneficial uh, and help decrease the cost of health care, which is not inexpensive anywhere. The NHS has a significant budget, significant cost, and is always challenged to be more efficient. That's true of health care throughout the developed world. And the developing world, the challenge is just access, getting those people in front of somebody who can help them. I think when I look over your career and at least what's public, it's easy to think, wow, how has he done so much? 
So both on the macro sense of throughout the years you've been live and all of the things you've done, but also just on a micro sense of how much you must be doing in a week or how many different things you must be doing. So, you know, earlier you joked that you were doing 26 hour days and all of that, but I just wanted to ask both on a macro sense and on a micro sense, are there ways that you manage your time or you manage projects? How are you able to do so many different things? Well, first of all, I don't do that anymore. That was, that's a, uh, uh, it, 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 I can famously tell you that, uh, entrepreneurship is something for the young, kind of like having families. So when I see somebody close to my age, a man who's got a younger wife and young kids, I just shake my head, okay? I, I, my grandkids, I love to hold them. I have a two-year-old and a, and, a, and a one-month-old. I love to hold them, I love to feed them, and I love to give them back to their parents. Diaper changes, getting up in the middle of the night, that's not for me. Okay, so entrepreneurship is like raising young children. It's for young people. Okay, so that uh, today I am very focused on a very few things because I, you know, I, I, I have done a lot and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the things I've done, but maybe I've got, I'm not dead yet. You know, I, as I tell people, I'm old, I'm just not dead and I haven't started forgetting things yet. So the, both of those are good. So I'm still working and, but I'm focusing my work on some very specific things. And, uh, you know, uh, one of these days I'll decide I've done about all I can do. And, and beyond that, all I can do is harm. So at that point, I will, uh, I'll, I'll find a nice, you know, my wife and I will find a nice beach somewhere. But uh, it, that day is not today. And today I am, I am you know, at, at my age and with the amount of really outstanding people I have around me, uh, I, I'm really focused on very specific things, very targeted, very limited. Uh, uh, you know, AliveCore does a lot of things I'm not involved in today, uh, and and I'm 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 glad to not have to be involved in them. The last thing I wanted to ask was that throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways you've approached things that you think have helped get you to where you are, or you think have been helpful in general? Yes, I'm, I'm ridiculously and impractically optimistic. Uh, and my wife is the opposite. She thinks everything's going to go wrong. And I just don't believe that I, they're in a situation I can't get out of. So that, that is a valuable talent uh, or skill or characteristic for an entrepreneur. Is to, and, and oh, by the way, sometimes I'm proven wrong. <laughs> so that... Uh, but but I, I I retain unrealistic optimism, and I think that has allowed me, despite oftentimes being told that this isn't going to work or you can't do that, uh, to persevere. And uh, if you you know, there's there there again another old adage. Uh, you'll never fail if you don't try but you'll never succeed either. So I don't mind trying and failing because every so often I'll succeed. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.